You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hey there, uh, I am uh, Jeff Edgers, the national arts reporter here at the Washington Post. And uh, today we have uh, a, 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 an amazing writer, a uh, former reporter, and uh, 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 the guy who you know as uh, the creator of The Wire. We're here to talk to David Simon about uh, his new show, new show, We Own This City, which is on HBO. Uh, they call it a limited series. I don't know what that means today, but it's a very, very uh, uh, well-written, well-acted uh, um, uh, document of this gun task force. That uh, uh, it's a true story based on a, on a book by a former Baltimore Sun uh, reporter, uh, David Simon. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me today. Uh, David, I'm I'm gonna uh, I, I want to talk about this show, but I think when I found out you were going to be on here and I was going to talk to you, uh, the first thing I thought of was what I think we've all been thinking of for uh, a, a while now, which is what's going on in Texas and um, at the Robb Elementary School and what's been going on in our country for a long time. I saw you. Um, I uh, follow your Twitter uh, religiously, and this morning you you you, you tweeted. Uh, woke this morning certain that the American experiment in self-rule is over. Greed, fear, and stupidity have triumphed. Um, so uh, I want to ask you, how do we step forward in a moment like this? What do we do? There seem like there are some obvious steps, but also that it's been so futile to call for those for so long now. I don't know. Um, I wish I had a simple answer, but the fact is our our governance, our self-rule has been purchased by mass capital, and there is profit in this much mayhem. And we have uh, traded the lives of vulnerable people, our most vulnerable people, these children in school, um, for profit and for political maneuver. And we have one major political party that will not accept any sane gun control as a premise. So what are you going to do? I mean, you know, the only the only alternative we, we have to, are you saying we have to vote in a filibuster-proof majority in the upper chamber of our bicameral legislature in order to do something sane? Or we just have to pause every few months and, and clean up the bodies? I think that's what we're saying. This, this country's broken. So we've been through this before. That's what makes every time this happens all the more heartbreaking and frustrating. Um, you are someone who's been an advocate uh, for really dealing with the prison overpopulation and, and, and getting rid of this thing that we've called the war on drugs. And you've talked a lot about gun control. Uh, I'd like to understand uh, for you, when this has happened in the past, how do you deal with that moment of where you're at right now, which is what's the point? We can't do anything to here's what we do. Here's how I advocate. Here's how I use my voice and, and, and try to push for something. You know, I, I, I would like to say that I have some uh, reservoir of, of hope that I was able to go to this morning, but I actually sat in the car outside my office for about 20 minutes and just didn't even feel like getting out of the goddamn car. Um, the, the images of those children 
in Texas. Um, and it, it brought me back yesterday. Um, it brought me back to remembering uh, Newtown, Newtown a, um, a decade earlier. And I, I remembered that I had written something on my blog and I went back and read it, which was probably a mistake because every damn phrase that I, that I put down in words about what I was feeling 10 years ago could be repeated with precision right now. Nothing has changed. Nothing. Um, and I linked to a piece by Gary Wills. I'm sure you may have seen it before, uh, uh, in which he invokes the American God, which is not Yahweh, it's Moloch. You know, we, we sacrifice our children in the name of uh, in the name of firearms, in the name of our ballistic love. Um, I reread Gary Wills's great essay on this, which he wrote even before Newton, and which I had linked to in that in that in that blog item, which is still up. And by the end of it, I was drained. I, I don't, I mean, if you're, are you asking me what we should do? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, we have a flawed, we have a flawed document. It is not that it is not a sacred relic of, 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 uh, infallible people. It's a legal document. It gave us slavery. It gave us women not voting. It gave us, um, uh, uh, an ambiguous phrase about uh, a well-regulated militia that has since, you know, in Heller and other decisions been interpreted to America's right to walk down the street with every kind of weaponry uh, imaginable, regardless of who they are and, and their mental state. Uh, that document uh, leaves a vast room for sickness and failure and pain. And the capacity for us to amend it in any coherent way to prepare ourselves for you know, every other country on the face of the earth that is that has modernized and is democratized has figured this out, and we are incapable. We are just incapable. So, I mean, I don't know what to tell you this morning. I'm uh, this morning. I am feeling like we're done. We're done. Yeah, I wanted to. You know, I'll be honest. I have a profession, and I have a job, and I have things to do, and deadlines, and I want to do those things. And I'm sure you do too. You have a ton of projects, but you wake up and you go, boy. What is the point of any of this, right? Uh, the, the, the cult of death that the Republican Party has become in America is astonishing to me. You know, I grew up in a, in a, in a notion where I was not going to agree on the vast majority of issues with Republicans, but there were some where I could, and there were some where I didn't see any um, uh, ideological problem. Uh, with certain positions undertaken by the Republican Party. I'm now 60 years old, and I can't recognize uh, the loyal opposition that is, in fact, um, looking towards an American future. Uh, I, I don't recognize that in the Republican Party. And, and I know that that sounds partisan or that, that people want me to blame the government or blame Congress, but that's not what it is. This is, this is, um, this is asymmetrical warfare on the part of people who are not really interested in anything other than power or money. Well, it's a simple, it, we've seen it in other countries, in Finland or New Zealand, and basically when something horrific like this occurs, a law is passed and things change. It's pretty basic, right? And we've seen it in and our country over and over again and it doesn't happen. Yeah, and then things get better. I mean, the, 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 the writing's on the wall, Australia, resolved its gun laws, and they don't have mass shootings anymore. Um, you know, other countries have done the same thing. And the, the, I mean, it, it, this is an American sickness. This is, 
This is something that is rooted. In, and, and you know it's not good for us because the Russians are funding it. The, mon the, the money being heaved into the NRA by the Russian government and by Russian, Russian, you know, Russian actors tells you they're not out to see us do well. They are, they are adversarial to us. They want our democracy to fail. So who do they fund? They fund the National Rifle Association. And they fund our politicians and our government is bought. And I don't know what you do with that because our Supreme Court has basically said money is speech. Well, money is talking. Children are dying. Money is talking. The Supreme Court has given us this world. They've given us Heller, uh, which has made gun control itself problematic. And they've given us Citizens United, which has allowed uh, the, the profit makers and the, the gun manufacturers to um, to achieve that that which is is the source of the bloodletting. Um, David, I want to um, I do want to talk about this uh, program uh, we own this city because I've been watching it and um, I'm a big appreciator of your work and uh, I think I, if people haven't seen it they they need to. I, uh, this is a true story. And I want you to explain a little bit about how you came to this. It, on paper, when I hear, oh, let's do something on the gun trace task force, it doesn't sound like the most marketable idea, right? But uh, these characters, these stories are fascinating. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about how this came to be? Sure. Well, I thought I was done with Baltimore and crime. Uh, I certainly thought I live here and, and my city certainly took a bite of that apple and I didn't really want to make it take another on my account. Um, but, but The Wire, which we worked on, began working on 20 years ago, was uh, if it had one policy argument to make, and it was very blunt about it, I thought, it was, and the drug war. Uh, the drug war has not only destroyed communities and families and individuals, filled prisons, built prisons and filled them. Um, it's destroyed law enforcement. It's made uh, that which is the most essential police work um, less rewarded, less heralded than going up on the bunch of corners and making your stats and grabbing a bunch of guys and getting paid for doing that which doesn't actually make us safer. And while it's, while it's been uh, waged, while we've done this, we've trained generations of cops how not to solve murders, solve robberies, solve rapes, um, how not to patrol their posts you know, to prevent crimes against people. We've taught them how to make arrests. And so the clearance rates in places like Baltimore and Chicago and elsewhere have nosedived. The national clearance rate for murder when I was in the homicide unit in the late 80s was 70%. It's now 35%, which means your chance of putting anyone in jail for a murder has gone from 4 in 10 in Baltimore to 1 in 10 once you shake the cases out. So we're not doing police work anymore. Um, and here comes this uh, scandal that I'm reading about in my local paper in the Baltimore Sun covered by Justin Fenton. And I wasn't even thinking about doing any more television in Baltimore, but I called Justin because I used to have that gig. And, and um, I said, this is a book. You've, you're, on, you're onto something that really is a true coda for where the drug war has taken us. This, this, this unit that basically was not only, okay, you know, in The Wire, you saw people stealing, you know, they kick over a mattress, they find some extra cash, it goes in their raid jackets, you know. There's, there's routine brutalities on the street for which police aren't, don't have to answer for. That was the culture of policing as I knew it. Uh, the idea that you would rob not only drug, drug dealers, but citizens, it's just take their money and not turn it in, not, not, not just drug dealers, but citizens, or that you would rob a drug dealer, take the drugs and then put them back on the street through another dealer. That's a level of, of debasement and cynicism that it took another generation of Baltimore policing 
under the drug war to get to. So I hadn't thought about it as 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 TV, but I, I put Justin in touch with my book editor, uh, my book agent rather, and he sold it and he wrote it. And sure enough, it came back from HBO. They had an early copy of the manuscript to George Palkanis, my uh, uh, my co-writer on this and, and longtime collaborator. And George brought it back and said, you know, we should do it. it it's it's really sort of the end. So it's a it's a it's a remarkable coda to what we were arguing in the wire. And so here we are. I mean, that's you make a really good point there. I thought about it when I um, was thinking about the wire. The cops there who are crooked, it's almost incidental. Like, oh, they run run into something. They see the money. They can't stop but jam a little bit into their into their you know pockets. This it's that a system. Back, that goes back that, to this. Yeah, it goes back to the 50s and 60s when you would kick over a numbers joint, you know, I mean. And this one is, money. this is a systematic, yeah. systematic growth of a system that's out of control where it becomes their primary focus on the job, right? Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You know, if you go back to Prince of the City, uh, the great Lumet film, um, there came a moment where the U.S. attorney is challenging this corrupt cop and saying, what did you do? You know, did you, did you take the money? Did you take some of the money? And yeah, they would take some of the money. They would even give some of it back to the arrestees. If you if you seize ten thousand dollars, you'd give two thousand back to the arrestees to buy their silence, and you two thousand, you and you'd turn in six. That was the, that was the New York way of 1972, 1970. So it goes back that far. But then he says to them, he says, "What did you do with the drugs? Did you take the drugs?" And the the corrupt cop gets up on his hind legs and he says, "How dare you? You know, no, we didn't take the drugs. I'm a cop." You know, there's an ethos to this. The drugs went to evidence control, not in Baltimore, not in Baltimore, not in 2015. We had finally reached the terminus of a drug war that has utterly devoured uh, our, our law enforcement deterrent. Meanwhile, you can't find cops in Baltimore anymore. You can't find enough of them who know how to write a search warrant that will hold up in court, who know how to use and not be used by an informant, who know... Uh, how to testify in the stand without perjuring themselves, who know how to work a crime scene properly, who understand the police computer database. These are all skill sets and they're complicated skill sets that you need to solve a major crime. But why do you need to learn all that when you can get paid for making 30, 40, 50 arrests a month and handing this ground stash to this guy and two vials to this guy and then showing up in court to get all your court and your overtime pay. And then at the end of the month, they promote you because you have 50 arrests, under, you have 50 collars. And this guy who maybe worked his post and arrested one guy for doing armed robberies, he's got one. So they make you the sergeant, and then you train the next generation how not to do police work. Welcome to Baltimore. Well, this, uh, there's a, you know, one of the central characters, obviously, is, is Sergeant Jenkins, Sergeant Wayne Jenkins, who is a real figure and is now, I guess, serving 25 years uh, for this. And uh, it's interesting. When I read about him on paper, I don't feel badly for him. I don't feel much empathy. But when you write him and you put him into this system, uh, you obviously make an effort to tell us about what might might have motivated him, that he's not all evil, that there's more to this. And I'm wondering, first of all, why do that? Is there part of you that wants to just say, this guy is a, a, a perfect example of the problem. He's teaching the younger guys how to do this. And uh, why do we need to uh, bring humanity to him? But you clearly I, want I, us to understand him differently. I certainly don't think he's sympathetic. I, I don't feel the sympathy on the page that maybe you do. Uh, I, he's he's written in a human scale. Um, you know, he loves his wife and kids. 
you know, he wants he wants his kid to um, make the peewee football team. He has the same sort of normative aspirations of the rest of us. You know, he doesn't he doesn't crawl into a coffin at night. You know, so the sunlight doesn't hit him. Aside from that, you know, he's an awful character. I mean, he's he you know he's destroying lives. Um, so I, I'm not sure. I, I feel as if. But you're you know, watching him. The reason he is that way. Him a puppy. The, the reason he is that him. way is because he he at the beginning of this you watch him come in there as a young guy with good ideas and he's brought in and he watches everyone around him teach him how he's supposed so to be right. To well, he came in in 2003. And if you go back to that year, you'll find a man named Marty O'Malley, who was the mayor of Baltimore. And he wanted to run for governor, and he was in the process of running for governor um, at the time. And he told his police department, he had a theory. He and his, his advisors had a theory, which is if you clear the streets of people, Baltimore was suffering with 300 murders a year, we can get the murder rate down because everyone will be off the streets. And they're less likely to shoot each other in houses than they are to have the, the gunplay on the streets. So we're going to clear the streets every night. And we're going to do it illegally. The Fourth Amendment doesn't exist. We're just going to fill the wagons. We're going to send everybody overnight, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. We're going to just send them down to the, the jail. It doesn't matter whether the charges stick. This is what we're going to do. Where Everyone goes. The wagons are full. And they did this. They did this to the point where the ACLU had to sue and basically got the city to settle. But, you know, it took so long that this went on for years. We arrested 100,000 people in a city of 600,000 in one year. Over 100,000. And um, the murder rate went down modestly to about 280, 270, went right back up after they, they, they abandoned this. You know. But what they did do was they taught police that, that the, their footpost was a dictatorship and that the Fourth Amendment didn't matter. And you didn't have to build cases. You just had to collect bodies. And Jenkins came off out of the academy, walked right into this maelstrom. That was his first introduction to what policing in Baltimore was. So while I don't think there's much strength of character in, in, in Wayne Jenkins, um, there certainly wasn't anything to teach him about what policing in America has to be. Um, and, and, and from the very moment he hit the street, Baltimore Police Department had lost its way. And it, it, the idea of mass arrest and the drug war had excused every viable form of, of, uh, of corruption. And, um, and it was only a matter of time. You, you, know, you teach police that the law doesn't matter. It's only a matter of time before the law truly doesn't matter to police. And, and Jenkins was the oldest of these guys. Most of these guys came on 2008, 2009. Um, but it was a police department that had already lost its way. And once you tear down that institutional memory of how to do the job right, which let, let's face it, even in the halcyon days of <laughs> two, you know, 1985, only 40, 50% of that department knew how to do the job right. But it was at least enough to, to maintain some semblance of professionalism. But once that's gone, once, once, once the institutional memory dies, restoring it is a hell of a job, hell of a job. Hey, folks, I just want to say that uh, we have a few minutes left, but if you want to ask any questions, you can tweet to post live. Uh, the, uh, they will get that information to me and I will ask David directly if it's a good question. Uh, David, um, it's interesting. You mentioned the idea that you're, you're, you, call up, uh, uh, you call up Justin Fenton after reading that article in the paper. I've been listening to the podcast of uh, 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 We Own This City and Dee Watkins, who's one of your writers. Mm -hmm. Another one who, it sounds like you read something he wrote, you thought it was good, you just got in touch with him at some point. Is, is that how you, uh, 
<laughs> how you find good people, how you find good talent, how you find people who have a gift for language that can uh, that can work with you? You know, with both those guys, it wasn't recruitment. I didn't think I would end up working with them on a, on a film project, but D, D showed up in the in the pages of the Baltimore City paper and he had a unique voice he, it was it was somebody at a street level from East Baltimore who was perceiving not only his neighborhood and, and the and the and the the, the cultural aspects of, of his neighborhood and then also the um the economic deprivation but he was also experiencing the policing from a unique perspective and, and um and he could write he could write some which hey so yeah I mean as soon as I started reading him you know I I just wanted to uh, talk to him and meet the guy because I live here. And when we got to this point of of considering making Justin's stuff into a book, we realized we we also needed the point of view. Well, it's basically a policing story, and it's true that the guys who did you know Ed was a detective for twenty years in the police department. I covered it for fifteen. Bill Zorzi added the uh, the part of City Hall that we needed. So, I mean, we were we were we were off and running with you know using the people who'd done the wire. But this piece uniquely needed the needed the perspective of the people who'd been policed by these guys, and you know uh, I, I remember reading specifically that you know about when 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 Danny Herzl's name first surfaced as one of these one of the corrupt cops about uh, Herzl giving you know giving D Watkins a good kick in the ribs on a black basketball court that you know, he knew Herzl he watched Herzl work, and and that's a voice that we wanted to have with us in, in the writers' room for very obvious reasons so. Um, you know, it was a delight working with D and, you know, you're going to hear, I mean, listen, he's already selling books on, he's on New York Times bestseller last time, you know, he doesn't need me, but, um, you're going to hear a lot from that guy. Yeah. I just love how you, it sounds like when you first identified his writing and when you called him about this, this series, it's a gap of time in your mind, you're always thinking, yeah. Hey, this guy's going to be perfect for this. Now, um, uh, Justin Fenton, uh, Fenton left the Baltimore Sun. He's at this new uh, upstart publication. You left years ago. Back in the 90s, when I thought things were glorious, you were talking about how journalism was was screwed up and dead. Um, I obviously have a position it's, here. Uh, I didn't think and, it was. And I, want, it was I want to ask you, right. is, it, is, it, is, is there hope here? Uh, is, is there something you see in, in how things have gone in the last few years, journalistically, that gives you some hope for how we cover things? Um, well, let's see, you want me to have some optimism. Okay. Um, you, don't I think, you don't have to have any optimism, but I just, no, I want to hear this I now. I was pessimistic enough about our, our capacity to ever achieve gun control and whether or not we would ever shake loose uh, massed capital and, and actually govern ourselves without the money getting in the way. So let me try to be optimistic about uh, journalism a little bit. Um, I think the fact that we've entered this post-truth era of American politics where you just keep keep lying and it doesn't matter if you're, if what comes out of your mouth comports any any remote way to facts on the ground uh, is scary. And it's, 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 it's a very gray and, and, and worrisome area for democracy. Uh, but it's also a place, you know, having it happen and having Trump happen as he did in Trumpism, um, and the authoritarian impulse, it shook up, I think, a lot of newsrooms. And I don't think, well, I think you can crit criticize how a lot of mainstream media performed during the election, during the first election. Um, I think in some respects, uh, the learning curve was on. And I think um, the number of, of mainstream media that is 
now confronting the reality that that the truth will not prevail unless it's spoken bluntly that the on the one hand on the other hand aspects of of the way in which i was taught to write reporting it no longer applies and that social media is so i think in some ways there's been a good learning curve and and you're seeing more blunt and direct uh work by mainstream media outlets that's that's to be valued that's at the high end that's at the national end the places like the post the times wall street journal you know the places that have built-in national uh, online subscription bases what's struggling and what's struggling because and, and I, I actually blame the high end for not reaching down and in some way contemplating um, a, a revenue stream that would include regional papers is major metropolitan dailies and second tier regions like you know the baltimore sun or the st louis post dispatch or you know wherever you want to go that are basically have basically been gutted uh and they and they and they i was the third buyout from the baltimore sun in 95. the gutting began it preceded um it preceded the internet they started taking profits and they start you know the, wall street realized a long time ago you could make more money putting out a crap newspaper than a good one so you know let's get 200 people out of the baltimore sun newsroom and let's put out a worse paper um and make more money doing it and, and we bought it i would argue well, i'm going to argue one other thing is I think it even is worse than that. I started, I'm 51 years old. My first job was at a 3000 circulation weekly. And I learned to cover the police beat, the school committee, the finance committee, all that stuff. And I learned that when the police busted somebody and brought out the value of street value of the drugs, you questioned that. I had a copy editor who, you know, told me that. I don't think that level occurs anymore. It's impossible because those papers don't exist at all. Right. And when, and, when I, and when I came on in 82, there were six people covering the Baltimore Police Department. Six. Mm -hmm. So I, I was not only being, you know, I mean, you know, I had the night beat. I went from four to 12 or, or four to one. And, and there were day, day cops reporters. There were people working on projects. And, you know, so the idea that you were covering a multitude of beats shows you that even generationally between you and me, the cutting was happening. So, yes, I, I listen, I think, hey, the Baltimore Sun is run by Alden. It's a, it's a shell of itself it's a, it's a, it's a horror show My, the alma mater is is effectively gone so here comes this baltimore banner which is going to try to do this online no cost for printing presses no trucks no newsprint no teamsters sorry teamsters i, I love you to death you know i love you when you drive my trucks to the <laughs> film set, but but you know they don't have the cost of circulation which was always a uh, it was always a lost leader circulation they don't have the advertising which was the way but circulation now if you can get people to pay ten dollars a month, twelve dollars a month, you, you can basically fund um, the equivalent of a 40, 50, 60 person newsroom, which is you know about the size of the old Baltimore Sun Metro desk. If you can deliver that kind of product and get 30, 40,000 subscriptions within a couple of years, you can sustain this, particularly if it's a nonprofit, which is what Stu Bainham is trying to do in Baltimore. So yes, if this is replicable, there is some real hope. Uh, for for metropolitan journalism in the second tier cities, obviously the, the Post the Times they've figured out their way. If you want me to yell at the Post and the Times now, I will because hmm. somewhere 25 years ago, the entire industry was supposed to get on at a table and they were supposed to do what what basically television did, which is, and I realize we've moved beyond this to streaming, but there was a, a huge 30 year window where they bundled. 50, 60, 70 channels together. And the lost leaders, the stuff that you might not pay for, like the Weather Channel or, or, or C-SPAN, 
was nonetheless funded um, in the in the bundle. You paid for all of it. And if the if the if print journalism had done the same thing 30 years ago, so that you got either the Post or the Times, you got either the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal, you got your local major metropolitan daily, whether you're in St. Louis or Cleveland or Baltimore, you got your local paper uh, covering your county or your neighborhood, you know maybe you got uh, a, a few sort of things, and you paid one fee and it was divided up. Um, the top end of journalism could have saved local reporting, and they could have done it. Uh, brilliantly and heroically, and everybody would have profited. But instead, they saved themselves. And by that time, hey David, I, I was, I you know, I was at the Boston Globe when the New York Times owned it. The way they treated us was pretty, pretty grim. So, I mean, I mean, and, and they owned us. We have a wait. We have a Twitter question. Can I ask you a Twitter question? Uh, because you know we got one, so I think we should we should use it. Uh, this is very pinpoint. What do you think happened with Sean Souter? Can Baltimore policing be? "Quote unquote restored." <laughs> um, it can be, uh, it has to be, but it will be a long road back. As I said, the institutional memory in that department is is vulnerable. Um, if I were the if I were the police commissioner, I would be hiring back not not as sworn officers, but almost as um, uh, as uh, as advisors, as as consultants, uh, the, the retired police who once knew the job. Uh, or maybe guys who work for federal agencies that have investigative skill, and I would be planting them in units as non-sworn uh, advisors to start retraining uh, oh. the fundamentals of police work. Um, so that's, I mean, it, look, it, it was a long time building that, this horrifying edifice that the drug work made. It's, you, you know, the journey of a thousand miles, one step, got to do it. What happened to Sean Suter? I'm probably getting one episode ahead of where we are, um, but someone asked, and here we are. Uh, it's a, it, if you understand the evidence, if you look at the practicalities of every single piece of physical evidence, Sean Souter took his own life. It's 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 just there. Um, you know, I, I I don't think we look. You know, as, as filmmakers, we took our responsibilities here very seriously. We looked at everything in the independent review, in the original homicide file. We we looked at all of what what was there. We looked at um, all the physical evidence. But I'll leave I'll leave your listeners or your viewers to, with one thing. If you if you imagine because you're inclined to think the worst of the Baltimore Police Department, and certainly in this miniseries, I'm not exactly delivering their best. So I don't have any. I wouldn't be adverse to saying Sean Souter was assassinated by his fellow officers because he was going to testify. But I'll give you two things that just make it fundamentally ridiculous um, to be premised on that. The first is that he had been named by other officers who were already indicted in their proffer sessions as having taken money early in his career. And there's no incentive for them to do that uh, because they're trying to get a deal. And if they if they screw up, if they say anything in their deal that's not accurate, they could lose what leniency they are being given for their early cooperation. So they have no incentive to name somebody who isn't involved in the earlier corruption. So I think uh, Detective Souter knew that um, the other shoe was about to fall. He, I don't think he was going to be indicted. I think you know, they, they were talking about things that were beyond the statute of limitations. He wasn't targeted in any way. But he was going to lose his job. And that was made clear to him by the federal investigators. So he knew that even before he went into the grand jury. But the second thing is really more telling. If you're, let's, let's imagine the worst, the most dramatic conspiracy theory that, that, is the, um, that, that gets everyone excited. Let's imagine that the, his fellow police officers want to assassinate this man because he's getting ready to testify. Why in hell would you have him out in an alley on a West Baltimore street and fight him for his own gun? 
It makes no sense. If you want to make it look like you certainly don't want it coming back to you that you assassinated him, and, and, and but but more but it's easy enough to just say he was out on the streets of West Baltimore, which is a dangerous place for a cop, and somebody drove by and shot him. You know, you shoot him, you shoot him twice, you make sure he's dead. You um you take the gun and you th you, you throw it in a, in a um it's it's not it's not a police weapon. You throw it in the um in the sewer and you and you and you're done with it, and let the cops try to solve it. Why would you go into that alley and fight him for his own weapon? He shot with his own weapon. It, it, it was a scenario that from the moment a lot of any intelligent cop, any intelligent investigator heard it said, you know, you could lose that fight. You could end up getting shot yourself. You could end up, uh, you don't know what's going to happen. This is a grown man. You're going to fight him for his weapon with his partner eight seconds away. And, and right. the partner... Yeah. Um, the partner, the partner's story checks out. The partner did what he said he did. So you have this man who um, is shot with his own gun at point blank range, presumably fighting with a suspect. And from there, you get to the idea that that suspect was a cop who was. It's insane. It's an, you know, but we have a capacity to want the most dramatic and um, excitable narrative to prevail. But unfortunately, in 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 doing this miniseries. Um, I felt a very fundamental responsibility to follow the facts as they were. And I don't think anybody who looks intelligently at what happened there believes anything other than this, this man had motive. And he created a circumstance in which he tried to make his own taking of his own life look like a, a death in the line of duty. Um, David, I, I, could, uh, I could talk with you for hours. Uh, they won't allow me to do such a thing. Uh, but I'm very grateful that you spent this time with us uh, because, uh, you know, frankly, it it it, it was kind of negative, but it gave me a distraction. And uh, now I got to go back to this normal life. And uh, but I really appreciate it. I, I hope folks will go uh, watch We Own This City and listen to the podcast. It's very enjoyable, uh, fascinating, uh, second level. Um, and, uh, you know, go to WashingtonPostLive.com and you'll see upcoming programming. Um, and uh, we really appreciate you uh, watching today. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.